In his beautifully insightful book, Peculiar Treasures, Fred Beekner paints this picture of Jeremiah. The word Jeremiah means a dolefully and thunderous denunciation, and its derivation is no mystery. There was nothing in need of denunciation that Jeremiah didn't denounce. He denounced the king and the clergy. He denounced the rich for exploiting the poor, and he denounced the poor for deserving no better. He denounced every new god that came sniffing around. And right at the gates of the temple, he told them if they thought God was impressed by all the mumbo-jumbo that went on in there, they ought to have their heads examined. But he told them that the Babylonians were going to come in and rip them to shreds as they richly deserved. They worked him over and threw him in jail. When the Babylonians did come in and not only ripped them to shreds, but tore down their precious temple and ran off with all the expensive hardware, he told them that since it was God's judgment on them, they better submit it or else. Whereupon they threw him into a cistern that happened to be nearby. Luckily, the cistern had no water in it, but Jeremiah sunk into the muck up to his armpits and stayed there till an Ethiopian eunuch pulled him out by the rope. He told them if they were so crazy about circumcision, then they ought to get their minds above their navels for once and try circumcising the foreskins of their hearts. And the only hope he saw for them that someday God would put the law in their hearts too, instead of only in the books. But that was a long way off. At his lowest ebb, he cursed the day he was born like Job. And you can hardly blame him. He had spent his life telling them to shape up with the result that they were in just about as miserable a shape as they had been if he had never bothered. And urging them to submit to Babylon as a judgment of God when all their patriotic instincts met them some like the worst kind of defeatism and treachery. But also, he also told them that Babylonian occupation or no Babylonian occupation, they should stick around so that someday they could rise up and be a new nation again. And then the first chance they got, a bunch of them beat it over the border to Egypt. What's even worse, they dragged old Jeremiah kicking and screaming along with them, which seems like the final irony that he who had fought so long and hard against all forms of idolatry, the nation as idol, the temple as idol, the king as idol, should at last have been tucked into their baggage like a kind of rabbit's foot or charm against the evil eye or idol himself. Our morning text comes from Jeremiah 32. And it happens at the moment the Babylonian forces are besieging the very gates of Jerusalem. Hear the word of God. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard of the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, 
Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anatoth. Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord has said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, buy my field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it's your right to redeem and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this word had come to me from the Lord. So I bought the field at Anatoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the sibyl on the scale. I, I took the deed of purchase and sealed a copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave the deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Mashiach, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the God. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord the Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Disturbing scenes from the war-torn area around Kharkiv bring our morning text into sharp focus. Most of us, mercifully, have never encountered scenes of such destruction. Watching the coverage of the victorious Ukrainian troops being showered with gratitude from their newly freed countrymen was in stark contrast to the devastation of the barmed-out buildings and homes in ruin and rubble. There are over 7.1 million displaced persons within Ukraine and millions more who fled the country. We are seeing with our own eyes the calamity brought on by an army laying siege. Our hearts ache and our eyes fill with tears at the stories of those who have fled the advancing Russian troops. In our text from Jeremiah, the, the time is 588 B.C., Jerusalem is under siege by the mighty Babylonian army and Jeremiah is imprisoned in the courtyard of the palace. He's seen as a traitor to the government of King Zedekiah since he's been preaching that it's the will of God that Judah should surrender. If you read, as my Disciple 3 class did last week, about the conditions in Jerusalem during the siege, the situation is utterly appalling. 
The book of Lamentations tells of the epidemics and disease that swept through the weakened and crowded population, the cruel lengths people turned to just to survive. Material property had no value. Silver and gold were worthless because there was nothing to buy. All commercial enterprises collapsed because there was nothing to sell. Property values plummeted, as they always do in war, because everyone was trying to sell property and flee the city. Who wanted any land when the Babylonians were at the gates? Anatoth was a little city uh, about three miles from Jerusalem, and it was where the Babylonian was camped. The army was camped and destroyed the vineyards, raised everything around it. It's in this situation that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, buy the field which is in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew, declares the prophet, that this was the word of the Lord. Family property for the ancients was precious. And here is the sign that I'm not willing to give it up. And more to the point, he's not going to pay for it at rock bottom prices. He's going to pay for what it's worth. The command is totally incomprehensible. Yet Jeremiah knows that Jerusalem is going to fall because of its rebellion against God. And yet he's told to buy the field. When everything looks hopeless, when fields and farms are not worth a penny, he pays full price. When there seems to be no hope because the world is crumbling around and the only thing worth doing seems to survive by any means, never mind the consequences. Indeed, when our weak human failures have gotten us into this kind of mess, we can't stand to analyze the guilty past or look forward to an awful future that we can hardly imagine. We try to shut out memory or shut out hope and just try to stay alive. But the word is not guard what you have, Jeremiah, little though it might be. Hide your scraps of bread and cup of water from those who peer hungrily into your courtyard. Never mind what's happening outside on the street. Look out for yourself. No. The word is by the field. And the reason for that command to the prophet in verse 15, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. There's a future beyond the immediate. And one needs to cast the gaze to what lies ahead. That's the word of the God that comes to us from this passage in Jeremiah. When everything is hopeless on a human scene, God still has a future. God is opening another way. Buying that field in Anatoth was a deliberate act of hope. Now all acts of hope expose themselves to ridicule because they seem impractical. 
failing to conform to visible reality. But in fact, they are the reality that is being constructed but is not yet fully visible. Hope commits us to action that connect us with God's promises. Hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work God has begun even when the appearances, especially when the appearance, oppose it. The lay theologian and activist William Stringfellow, who knows Jeremiah's struggle, still agrees with him, writing, Hope is reliance upon grace in the face of death. The issue is that of receiving life as a gift, not as a reward and not as a punishment. Hope is living consistently, patiently, expectantly, resiliently, joyously in the efficacy of the Word of God. Every situation in which we find ourselves must be included in the kingdom that we are convinced God is bringing into being in God's time. Hope is buying into what we believe. We don't turn away in despair. We don't throw up our hands in disgust. We don't write this person off as completely incorrigible. We don't withdraw from a complex world that is too much for us. This morning, our Sunday school speaker for the Covenant class in Fellowship Hall is Laura Fabricki. Last year, she taught for us from her book, The Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, which she wrote after having been a guide at Bonhoeffer's house in Berlin, to which she had the actual key. The remarkable book outlines what she learned through the experience, and one of her central insights is the need for Christians to fight against the sin of acedia. Counted as one of the seven deadly sins, it's a spiritual or mental sloth, apathy, or colloquially, not giving a damn. Her concern has led her to pursue a PhD on the topic, and this morning she'll share with us the fruit of her research and writing. Eugene Peterson would agree with Laura. He observes, It is, of course, far easier to languish in despair than to live into hope. For when we live in despair, we don't have to do anything or risk anything. We can live lazily or shiftlessly with an untarnished reputation for practicality, current with the way things appear. It's fashionable to espouse the latest cynicism. If we live in hope, we go against the stream. One area I hear God calling us to go against the stream or to mix a metaphor, to buy a field, is the view of the church. Now, I don't mean just Westminster or even the whole Presbyterian denomination, but God's whole church. The church that we affirm we believe in when we say the creed. A certain cynicism is fashionable about its demise. And while it's challenged, it's certainly true as the old hymn sings, Though with scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed by schism run asunder and heresies distressed. But so it has always been. There are no new heresies, no new schisms. 
We have, for instance, seen the cancer of Christian nationalism and what happens when racial ideologies masquerade as theology before and the church through her creeds and confessions reflecting on Scripture has said they are not of God. There has never been a perfect church because the church is simultaneously a divine and a human institution. That's why the motto of the reformers and a rallying cry for Presbyterians has been Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. The church reformed, always being reformed according to the Word of God and the call of the Spirit. Why do we need reforming? In the first place, we need reforming because of who we are. Sinners, broken people. We acknowledge that the church, even at its best, is a frail and fallible human institution. We know that as our motto, our focus statement says at the back of the bulletin, we hold these treasures in earthen vessels. My old Reformed theology professor Ed Dowie used to say that reform is the institutional counterpart to personal repentance. We need to reform. And secondly, we need to reform because of who God is. God is a living God. Always opening new opportunities as the world and culture changes in powerful ways. God opens another way. And it may just be, as Phyllis Tickle has suggested, that we're living in a time just like the Protestant Reformation where things are changing at such a level that we need new insights for what God is doing in our midst. I thought a lot about that during my sabbatical season. And I must confess to you that there were times and places where I was where I thought, golly, the cynicism is right on. I, I, I found myself on a Sabbath morning in a tiny Presbyterian church in the middle of the Adirondacks of New York. There were eight of us sitting in the sanctuary. There were six in the choir, a choir director and a preacher. Revival could not have happened had Jesus Christ showed up that morning. I mean, really. But over and against that, I would tell you, I went to a church in Truckee, California. There were 30 of us. It was a Lutheran Presbyterian church getting ready to celebrate its 30th anniversary. 30 of us were there. And it had an opportunity for prayer in the congregation where people would popcorn prayers out and it was one of the richest experiences of corporate prayer I had had. I came away just so grateful for the witness of that small church in that little place. And then I heard of what my friend George Anderson up at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke has done. They did a building renovation a number of years ago. And all of a sudden, he and the session decided they needed to take on a bigger vision. 
and ended up had a mission build campaign that raised a million seven, not for themselves, but to invest in mission work in the city of Roanoke and in places around the world. What a witness of the church being involved outside its walls for the kingdom with big vision of how we can make a difference in people's lives. This past Monday and Tuesday, I was in Greenville, South Carolina for the Outreach Foundation board meetings. And there I heard about the the work that we're partnered with in Ukraine, that the Outreach Foundation has funneled money to partner churches in Poland and Latvia and Lithuania that are working with refugees and that congregations and individuals have sent a million four to support that important work. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I find myself connected with that wider witness of Christ, I am so grateful to be part of the church. There's an old not so old hymn that runs the church of christ in every age beset by change but spirit-led must claim and test its heritage and keep on rising from the dead i would say to you this morning go by the field for god provides another way remember that beyond calvary's cross And beyond Golgotha's grave comes Easter morning. We worship a God who is living and invites us to be about the work He calls us to do here and around the world. My old president at Princeton Seminary used to say to us, bet on the church. Bet on the church. Because it's God's church, it's not ours. Thanks be to God that God calls us to be part of the body. Amen.